1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, if you want to follow along, and uh, <clears throat> we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. As many of you know, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. We started in the first week of January, and uh, we are about four, a little over four months into it. Um, if you've missed any, again, keep in mind these are available on the uh, podcast um, so you can get it off of iTunes or you can go to the church's website and have access to it as well. Now, last week I told you guys about, if you'll remember, I kind of gave you a sneak peek and I told you the parable of the empty drink cans. Everybody remember that if you were here last week, the parable of the empty drink can. And the story we told is of a, this middle-aged man and he's walking through a neighborhood. It could be the farm or it could be any other neighborhood we've got. And he's, he's taking a walk and he's got a drink can and as he's walking, he's drinking and finally he finishes his drink. And if any of y'all know, there's nothing worse than having an empty drink can in your hand, right? Every, you just have to get rid of it. So what this man does is he's walking along and he walks by his one of his neighbor's houses and there's a series of bushes that kind of hide the house from, from his view or the house can't see what he's doing. So what he does, he takes a quick glance to the left to make sure nobody's looking and he takes a quick glance behind him to make sure nobody's looking and then he throws his empty drink can over into his, uh, into his neighbor's yard. And you may say, well, what is the lesson behind that parable? Well, the lesson is that little parable tells us a lot about the typical American, uh, the typical American life. You see, that man is walking along the sidewalk, and he can see what's in He sees there's nobody in front of him. The ground is underneath. Uh, the, the hedges on, in front of his neighbor's yard hide him to the right, and he takes a quick glance to the left and a quick glance behind to cover himself, and he throws it over. Now, the question is this, why didn't he look up? You know, he looked left, right, behind him, in front of him, but he didn't look up, did he? And you see, because at that moment in time, that man was a practicing atheist. There might have been somebody to the left that mattered. There might have been somebody behind him that mattered. There might have been somebody ahead of him that mattered. But there was nobody in heaven that mattered. You see, that is today the typical American. I read the, 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 the most recent poll I could find was a 2014 poll that said still over 92% of Americans say they believe in God. I think... It was like 3% were atheists, 5% were agnostics, which means they, 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 they just said we don't have enough information to make a decision. But 92% of Americans say they believe in God. But you see, here's the deal. What people say with their words doesn't, show, doesn't tell me anything about whether you really believe in God. What tells me you really believe in God is when you look up when there's nobody else around. You see, we all have decisions every day to make. Sometimes they're little decisions. Sometimes they're big decisions. And a lot of us care about what other people think. We care about what our family thinks. We care about what our friends think. Sometimes we care about what our co-workers think or what society thinks. The question is, do you care about what he thinks? In little decisions and big decisions, do you look up to say, God, what do you think about this? What do you say about this? You see, that point of that parable is simply to remind ourselves that we are not atheists. We believe in Jesus Christ, and we will look up, no matter what the decision is, 
that we have to make. When that battle begins in our own soul, and it may be a little thing, it just may be a little thing. Do I throw this drink can into a neighbor's yard? Or it may be a big thing. But when that battle begins in our soul to make that decision, do I do right, do I do wrong, we're going to look up to see what does God say about it. And through the power of the Spirit of God, we'll be free from the desires of our body, what our body thinks it wants to do, and we will not be enslaved by anything. Now, today we begin our lesson on the Christian and sexual freedom. Now, we are going through chapter 6, and we just basically... We hit anything we come to. We don't, we don't dodge any subjects or move away from any subjects. We just go right into what Paul is talking about. And you remember last week in chapter 6, we started with Paul talking about lawsuits. If you go back to chapter 6, one of the problems they're having in the church at that time is they're suing one another to settle their problems. Instead of going to the elders, letting the church settle the problem in the family, they're suing each other. And so Paul starts out in chapter 6 talking about uh, lawsuits. Now the question is, how in the world does Paul go from lawsuits to sex in the same chapter? Right? You think Paul's going to take you a little while to, to work up this. No, he just goes straight from lawsuits to, to talking about sex. So how does he do that? Well, look at verse 8. This was where we left off last week. Paul is talking to people who are suing one another, and he says this, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So you got people in the church that are cheating uh, their own brothers and sisters out of money or out of property or, or whatever. They're swindling, they're defrauding one another. So Paul says this in verse 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says, don't deceive yourself. You think you can do these things and you're just going to go to heaven and everything's going to be okay. Paul said it doesn't work that way. Don't be deceived. When you do those kind of things, when you cheat people out of their money, when you practice sexual uh, immorality, when you're a drunkard, when you're an idolater, he said when you do these kind of things, you are not going to heaven. Now, When you read that list, it's easy to think, well, Paul's talking to the world. He's talking to them out there, but he's not. He's writing this letter to the church, is he not? I mean, we've been studying this for four months. This is written to the church at Corinth, probably a letter that's meant to be read in other churches. He's not talking about the world at all. He's talking about the church. In fact, he verifies this in the next verse. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you. You were sexually immoral. You were adulterers. You were homosexuals. You were drunkards. You were idolaters. That's what some of you were. But he goes on to say, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, so here's the situation. Think about what Paul is saying. You have people in the church who were washed, sanctified, justified. They've been saved, okay? Yet, evidently, they're still practicing some of the same things they did when they were not saved. And we talked about this last week, right? They, when you get saved, don't you kind of bring your baggage into the church with you? 
And it ta- you know, it takes a little bit of time for that, that, that God to start working on you and get rid of this baggage. Well, they've brought this baggage into the church uh, with them. For example, they were divided. We saw that in chapters 1 through 4. They were allowing incest in the church. We saw that in chapter 5. They were suing one another. We saw that in chapter 6. When we get to chapter 11, you'll find out they were coming to the Lord's Supper and getting drunk in the church. Now, you, now you just think the church down the road is bad. This church was a complete mess. Okay, I mean an absolute... Just think about it. They're divided. They're suing one another. They're, they're, they're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They got a guy in the churches that's uh, sleeping with his mother or his stepmother, and nobody's doing anything about it. I mean, this church is, is a mess, and that's why Paul, Paul writes this, this letter. Now, I know what you think, right? You're saying to yourself, what's wrong with these people? Didn't they, don't they know that the Bible says don't do those things? Don't they know that? Well, they don't. Why not? They don't have a Bible. See, you, you, we forget this about this early church. They didn't have a Bible. They were Gentiles, so they didn't read the Old Testament. They didn't care about what the Old Testament said. Probably had never opened one in their, in their life. And the New Testament is still being written. And by the way, we sit here today at River of Life, and you have 2,000 years of Christianity pressing down on your culture. Right? Even if you're not a Christian... You, 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 there's Christianity all around you. There's churches everywhere. There's, there's ads on billboards. There's, you know, you study Western civilization in college, and it's all it's Christianity, 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 Christianity. Christianity formed this, this country, this world, this civilization that we live in. They had none of that. They come out of paganism. They come out of, of temples that practice prostitution and worship uh, Athena and Aphrodite. That, they didn't have any. This is all new to them. And they have no Bible telling them what to do. Now, so what's, what's controlling them? What's, what's kind of uh, trying to... Uh, what do they use to know how to behave? Well, let me ask you this. Wouldn't you agree that even today, people who don't believe in the Bible... Don't everyone have some sort of code that they live their life by? Wouldn't you say everybody has some sort of philosophy? You know, if I went around and I just went out to Winn-Dixie or Walmart and I did a survey and I said, what's your philosophy of life? Some people might say, well, it's live and let live. That's my philosophy, you know. I just live my life and let everybody else do what they want to do. Some people may say, well, it's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we're going to die. In other words, grab the gusto. Do whatever you can do because when you die, it's all going to be over. Others may say something that's very truthful. They may say, treat others as you want them to treat you. I heard one guy said the other day, his philosophy on life was do unto others before they do it unto you. Right? That's not real great, but would you agree that everybody has some sort of code, some sort of philosophy? We see, that's exactly what the Corinthians had. They didn't have a Bible. But what they did have was Greek philosophy. We have 2,000 years of, 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 of Christianity kind of pressing down on us. What they had was philosophy. They had men like Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, that for several hundred years had been creating a civilization based on uh, Greek philosophy. Now, some of their philosophies were real. They really did try to do the right thing. But some of their philosophies was just an excuse for bad behavior. It's like somebody saying, my philosophy on life is live and let live. 
that's just an excuse to do whatever you want to do and don't, you know, let everybody else do what they want to do. It's no big deal. And you had the same thing here. So what you're going to see in verse 12, and you've got to understand this to understand these verses, is what you're seeing is a Corinthian slogan that they use to justify their bad behavior. And you see Paul's response to it. Look from verse 12. He says this, All things are lawful. Notice the quotes. Paul is actually quoting a, a philosophy or a slogan that they're living by. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. There's that quote again. But I will not be dominated by anything. Now, if that is a slogan or a philosophy that they live their life by, you might want to ask, well, where did they, where did they get that? Where did that come from? Well, it could very well be that that slogan or philosophy comes from Paul's teaching himself. Notice that Paul doesn't disagree with it, does he? Paul says, no, you're, you're wrong, guys. Not all things are lawful. Paul doesn't say that at all. Paul, say, Paul says all things are lawful. Okay, He actually agrees with that, and we probably should too. For example, Romans 6.14 4, uh, says, you're no longer under the law, but under grace. You see, as Christians, your behavior is no longer controlled by this legal list of do's and don'ts. Okay, Most everybody I know wants to know, is that a sin? Don't we? Just give me a list of rules so I can know which ones to follow and which ones I, you know, just give it to me. Paul says it don't work that way anymore. You're under grace. You're not controlled by this legal list that you can check off and say, yes, I, I did all that. But you see, the Corinthians had taken that teaching too far. They thought because they didn't have to abide by this legal list, Paul says, you're not under the law anymore. They thought, well, that means I can do anything I want. See, they just they took the pendulum too far the other way. But when Paul says... All things are lawful for me. He means something very different than the people in Corinth meant. Now, it is true that as Christians, our behavior is no longer controlled by some law. There's, there's not a list that goes down and says, do this. We talked about this a few weeks ago. There are, you, I can find you places in the Bible where Paul says, in this situation, eat meat. In this situation, don't eat meat. Are you with me? There are certain things that sometimes you can do it, and sometimes you shouldn't do it. It depends on the situation. It's not just a list, don't ever do this, don't ever do that, don't ever do, do this. In fact, Paul goes on to say there are two things as a Christian that should control your behavior, and he lists them in verse 12. He says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. That's number one. And number two, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now look at that, what he says. Not all things are helpful. You see, in one sense, we're no longer controlled by that list of do's and don'ts. All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial for me. All th not all things are profitable. Not all things are, are good for me. In other words, as a Christian, we no longer have to ask, what do I have to do? Which most of us want to know. Just tell me what I have to do. Paul says, no, that's not what you ask. What you ask, is this good for me? Is this good for others? Ask that question. He goes on to say this, I will not be dominated by anything. In other words, don't ask, am I permitted to do this as a Christian? Instead, ask, could this thing enslave me? Could this thing gain power over me? Could this food or drink or sex or hobby or work become my master? 
Let, let me give you an example. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked that question right there. Is smoking a sin? Is smoking a sin? Now, if you ever ask me that question, immediately that tells me something about you, and that tells me that you're looking for a list. You want me to tell you, is that a sin, yes or no? So I can say, oh, that's a sin. Better not do that. Or better. Paul says, you're asking the wrong question. Don't ask, you're, you know, don't look for a list of do's and don'ts. Am I permitted to do this? In fact, Paul says, ask these two questions. Number one, is it good for me? Number two, is it enslaving me? Those are the questions. The question is not, is it on this legal list of do's and don'ts? The question is, is it good for me and is it enslaving me? Paul says, ask those two questions. That's the questions you should ask as a Christian, not is it some on some list. Now, I hear people say these things sometimes, but I'm saved. I had a lot of the, back years ago when I was a youth pastor here, serving a youth pastor, I would do teachings on things like this for the kids. And kids are the, they're really the best people to teach because they'll, they'll ask anything. You know, y'all kind of sit around and you got questions in your mind, but you're thinking, well, if I ask that, they'll think I'm stupid. I'm not going to ask that question. But kids will just ask you anything. I mean, they'll just come up to you and say, well, I don't understand. What about this? And they always have the weirdest situations in their mind, right? Well, what about, what about if the moon's in this quadrant? And then I have, I had to do that on this day, you know? And I'm like, really? Yeah, that's what you're worried about? So I had, I had some of the kids ask me one time, I was talking about, you know, Every little thing matters in your life. You know, little things. I was talking about looking up, you know, asking, what does the Bible say about this? And somebody asked me one time, well, what is it, why does it really matter? If I'm saved, if I'm going to heaven, what does it matter if I get, if I'm enslaved to some little habit? Or if, or if some little thing has control over me? What's the, what's the big deal about that? Well, this is what I would tell them, and I'll tell you the same thing. When you refuse to say no to a habit, any kind of little thing. Now, again, it could be it could be some kind of addiction like smoking or overeating or something like that. It could be something like gossip. It could be pornography. It could be a lot of things. We could just go down the list. When you refuse to say no to something, what you're doing is after a period of time, you run a risk of hardening your conscience. The Bible talks about having your conscience seared with a hot iron. That means that you're, after a while, you won't feel guilty about it anymore. You'll just keep doing it, and you won't ever feel guilty about it. And by the way, once you've done that with one thing, it's way easier to do it with the second. Way easier. I, I, I say this all the time. I, I hate repeating myself, but it is so true in everybody's life. If Satan can move you one inch, one inch is all he's got to move you. Well, if he can move you one, he can move you two. Would you agree with that? If he can move you two, he can move you a foot. And if he can move you a foot, he can move you a mile, and one day you'll look, look up and you've got no idea how you got where you are. No idea how you got where you are. You see, because once you, once you give in to one thing, it becomes that much easier to do the next thing. And pretty soon the whole biblical concept of self-control and self-denial just completely drops out of your life. Unless you think, well, that could never happen to me. Well, where do you think backsliders and apostates come from? Do you know what an apostate is? An apostate is somebody who said, I believe in Jesus Christ, 
And then down the road, they back completely away from it. They fell completely away from the faith. They don't believe anymore. They're not in church anymore. They're not trying to live according to the uh, Bible anymore. That's called an apostate. Where do you think they come from? Well, they come from people who little by little, in things that they thought, well, this isn't that important, they didn't listen to the voice of God in their own conscience. And i tell you something else they didn't do. They quit looking up. Even in the little things, they just stopped looking up. God, what do you think? What do you say? And little by little, one day they look up and they're so... I talked to a man this past week. Went to this church right here. Was a man of God. Moved away about five years ago. And he told me the other day, he said, I'm so far from where I was, I don't know how I got here. And I can tell you, and I, I told him the same thing. I'll tell you, because it started in the little things. Just in the little things, moving a little bit and a little bit. And one day you look up four years later, five years later, and you're so far from where you were, you got no idea how you got there because you stopped looking up. You might care about what people think, but you don't care anymore about what God thinks. You see, God records for us over and over in Scripture, and He warns us, don't make that mistake. Look at 1 Timothy 1.19. It says this, Holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. You see, they quit listening to their conscience. They quit listening to that voice of God saying, don't do that, don't do that. And, and, and he literally says they've made shipwreck of their faith. These were men and women who at one time were professing Christians. That's why Paul goes on and says, what you do matters. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, 25-27. We'll get here in a few weeks. He says, all athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I might myself be disqualified. You see, these type of things are written so that we would realize that our body needs to be brought under control. You Listen, if you are a Christian, you are a child of God. You're not some dog that's to be led on a leash of things like hunger and lust and anything else. You are a child of God. That's what Paul is saying. Don't, don't give in to those things. Don't let those things dominate you. Act like a Christian. Now, we mentioned earlier that there were two philosophies that were kind of driving the Corinthians. One was this slogan, all things are lawful. The second one was a Greek philosophy, and it was very dangerous. And you're going to see this Greek philosophy quoted in verse 13. Look at this verse 13. And some of you for a long time may have had no idea what this even means. So I want you to understand that what you're seeing quoted there was a philosophy that was very popular in that time. And it came out of the Greeks' uh, teaching. And I'll, let's read verse 13. It says this, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now, what you need to understand about the Greeks is the Greeks saw the body as being temporary. What was important to the Greeks was your spirit, what you thought, what you believed. That's, that's what they put all their time and effort into them. To them, the body was just a temporary shell. Okay, Eventually, you're going to die. That body is going to go corrupt and fade away. It's just here for a little while to process food and have sex, and after that, it's gone. So to them, the body didn't mean, the body meant very anything. In fact, the Greek culture had a slogan. 
The slogan was, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, the body is just temporary. Its purpose is to do things like process food and have sex, and then it's going to be gone. So to them, the body meant absolutely nothing. It was the spirit that, that mattered. Now, like any good lie, there's always a hint of truth in it, right? You find a person that's a good liar, there's always a little bit of truth in it. Because if there's no truth in it at all, it's so easy to spot. But so a good liar will always find a lie that has a little bit of truth in it. This has a little bit of truth in it, right? Look at 1 Corinthians, um, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 4.18. Paul says, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. In other words, the Bible teaches this is not our home, is it? We're just passing through. Okay, this body is going to die. What we are to focus on are eternal things, on, on things that we can't see. That's what's important. Jesus said this in Matthew 15. Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Don't you see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. So even Jesus said, it's not what you eat. It's not what you drink. It's not what you smoke that defiles you. And there's nothing you can put in your body that would defile you spiritually. That's what Jesus said. Jesus says, what comes out of your heart that defiles you? It's what's inside, in your spirit. That's what defiles you. So there's a little bit of truth here, okay? But again, the Greeks had taken that view of the body too far. They reasoned that the body and food and drink and sex are going to be destroyed in the end. Therefore, whatever you do with the body makes no difference morally. See, they took it too far. You can do whatever you want with your body. It makes no moral uh, difference. To the Greeks, it's the spirit that's morally relevant. It's what you know, what you think, what you believe. Therefore, to them, you can eat, drink, have sex any way you like, and it makes no difference morally. Okay, just do whatever you, you want. Now, Paul is going to oppose this view with all his might. And what you're going to have in verse 13, again, is another Corinthian slogan used to justify bad behavior. And in response, Paul is going to give them a radically different idea. Look at verse 13 in its entirety. Paul says this. Again, he's quoting the Greek philosophy. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. And then Paul says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now, I want you to pay very close attention to what Paul's saying there. Paul is really saying, you know what, guys? I agree with you. The stomach is for food, and food is for the stomach. In other words, that's what the stomach was created for. It was created to process food. That's its purpose. Everybody see that? He's saying, I agree with you. That's exactly what the stomach is for. It is to process food. That, it's going to do that for a little while, and eventually it's going to be gone. It's going to be over. But see, the Corinthians took that a step further. They said this, yeah, Paul, in the same way, sex is meant for the body, and the body is meant for sex. It's just biology. It's just natural. That's what the body was created for. In the same way the stomach was created for food, the body was created for sex. It's just biology. It's just natural. Now, I want you to listen to Paul's response again in a couple of other translations. Look at the NIV. You say food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. 
The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Look at the New Living Translation. Paul says, you say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food, and this is true, and someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. Now, that Greek philosophy should sound very familiar to us because it's 2,000 years later and the world has the exact same philosophy it had back then. Listen to the world, watch your movies, read your books, listen to the music, and you'll hear this same, same philosophy over and over again. It's just biology. It's just, it's just natural. It's just sex. It doesn't mean anything. It's just what the body was made for. Just, just do it. It doesn't mean anything. That's exactly what the Greeks were saying 2,000 years ago. But Paul says you can't say that about the body. You can say that about the stomach. Because the stomach, that is its purpose, is to process food. But he says the body was not made for sex. The body was not created for sex. That's not its purpose. It's something it does, right? But that's not what it was intended for. Paul says you can't take that statement you just made and make that about sex. Sex is something completely different. Now, this was something they'd never heard before. This, this, I mean, the world had never heard anything like this. Of course, the Jews had because it's in the Old Testament. But the their Corinthians, man, they thought this is just natural. It's just biology. Anybody can do it. It doesn't mean anything. It makes no moral difference. Paul said, no, 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 no. You can't take that philosophy and apply it to sex because sex has a different meaning. And he goes on, well, what is its purpose then? What is the body meant for? Well, Paul's going to tell us two things the body's meant for. The, he says this, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but, number one, it's meant for the Lord, and number two, the Lord is meant for the body. Now, we're, next week, we're going to get into why is sex different? Why is sex, the Bible says that sex is a sin, sexual immorality is a sin, but why is it a sin different from any other? There's something about it that makes it different from any other, any other sin that you can, you can commit. But today I want to focus on two things with a few minutes we got left. He says this, don't say the body's meant for sex. That's not its purpose. The body is meant for the Lord, and the Lord is meant for the body. Now, let's look at those two things real quick. Paul says the body was meant for the Lord. What does he mean by that? Well, he could mean a lot of things. I'm going to give you three. Number one, Paul tells us clearly that God himself lives in us. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 19. We'll talk about this next week. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. If you are a Christian, the Bible says you were bought with a price. Not just your spirit, but your body was bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to Him. And as such, even more so, shouldn't we look up? God, what do you want me to do with this body? How do you want me to handle this situation? What should I do here? The Bible says clearly that the Holy Spirit lives in us. Do I understand that? No, not really. But again, I trust the Bible. He says it lives in us. You see, God bought us, and the price he paid 
was the death of his son. But he didn't buy us as slaves, but as dwelling places. He, he didn't, his aim is not to make us work for him. His aim is to make us full of him. I mean, he is in us. Our bodies belong to him. And God desires a pure dwelling place. Look at Titus 2.14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness or sin and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He bought us and he desires to dwell in a pure dwelling place. Number two, he means our bodies will not be destroyed but raised. Look at verse 14 and we'll cover this more next week. And God will raise us. Now again, he's talking about our bodies from the dead by his power just as he raised our Lord from the dead. You see, the Greeks said the body's here for a little while eat food, have sex, it's going to go away, it means nothing. Paul said, no, 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 you don't understand. That body that you have, that body is going to be raised from the dead. You see, God will never throw our bodies away. He is never going to let death have the last word. Just as he raised Jesus from the dead and gave him uh, an everlasting, eternal body, he's going to raise our bodies from the dead and give us an everlasting, eternal body and make them new and make them whole. On that day, there's not going to be any more pain. There's not going to be no more deformity. There's not going to be no more disability, no more sexual disorientation, no more chemical imbalances, no more headaches, no more insomnia, no more disease. Our bodies will be absolutely perfect as they were always intended to be. So Paul says, your body belongs to the Lord. It's not a temporary thing that you're just going to throw away. We live in a throwaway society, don't we? I was thinking about this the other day. We use some, I'm the world's worst. We'll buy something, you know, it's 100 bucks, right? It's an old something, whatever. It'll tear up. I'll just throw it away and go buy a new one. It's, it's, it's easier to buy a new one than it is to go through the hassle of taking it somewhere, getting it fixed. Just throw it away and get a new one. Well, a lot of people are just like that, but these bodies aren't throwaways. They're not, they're not they, they mean something. They matter in this life. Number three, one of the things he means when he says our bodies belong to the Lord or they're meant for the Lord or they're purpose for the Lord is that our bodies are meant to glorify God. In chapter, in verse, this same chapter, we'll look at this next week. By the way, if you need a philosophy in life, if somebody comes up and says, what's, what's your philosophy of life? This is a good one. This is a good one right here. For you, for God bought you with a high price, therefore glorify God in your body. It's a good philosophy to live by right there. I was bought with a price. I'm going to glorify God in this body, in this spirit, and in this, in this life. What that means, very simply, is you use your body in ways that show that God is more valuable, more trustworthy, more glorious, more to be desired than anything this body craves. That's, that's what that means. How do you glorify God? You live your life to show that, man, I'm going to live my life to show that he's more valuable than anything here. He's more valuable than anything here. I want to to please him more than I want to please anybody. It's like that guy walking through the neighborhood, right? Is it really that big of a deal to throw a can into a neighbor's yard? See, what's the big deal is the guy never thought, he never looked up. What is God? That's the big deal. It's not what he did. It's the fact that he didn't bring God into the picture. Glorifying God wasn't even in his thoughts. Now, Paul makes one more statement. And don't miss this statement. It says this, The Lord is meant for the body. Now, if you're not careful, you would miss this. 
Okay, the body's meant for the Lord. The Lord is meant for the body. What does Paul mean by saying the Lord is meant for the body? It'd be really easy to overlook that, but that would be a big mistake because what it tells us is that the Lord is not against the body, he's for it. Okay? This is something we need to teach our children from the very early age. God is not against. You see, a lot, too many people... I was reading some articles this morning while well, I'm waiting for Kathy, and um, I'm sitting there. Yeah, that was a little jive at Kathy right there. Um, so I'm waiting on Kathy, so I'm on there, I'm reading some articles. And, you know, it was talking about how, the, how culture views Christianity. And, and they really do think, when you go read some of these articles that people write, they really do think that Christians think the body is evil. That, that we think that everything about the body is evil and all its appetites are evil and we're just enduring this life until we die and we throw this body away and go on to better things. In other words, they really think that we don't want anybody to have fun, that we don't want anybody to enjoy themselves, that we're just a bunch of killjoys. But you see, none of that is true. What that little statement tells us that the Lord is for the body, that tells us that, is that the Lord made the body He's for the body. See, he wants us to enjoy life. He wants us to enjoy food, enjoy drink, enjoy sex. He, he created those things. He wants you to enjoy those things. He wants you to have life, and he wants you to live it more abundantly. He wants you to have the best of everything. But you see, God knows there's a right way and there's a wrong way. He knows that. He created you, right? And so he knows... He knows there's a right way to enjoy these things and there's a wrong way. And if you'll do it my way, it'll be unbelievable. Listen, the other night, my youngest son, Micah, he comes home and for some reason he likes that show Cops. Everybody, I know everybody's here has seen that show Cops, right? It's been on for 40 years, it seems like. He loves that show. I don't know why. But he'll sit there and just watch it, watch it over and over. And I was sitting there the other night and we were watching it. And they showed up at a house on a domestic violence call. And they interviewed one of the cops, and the cop says, yeah, I mean, we've been to this house 50 times. They're always fighting and beating on each other, and, and you know, it's just a, it's a mess, and we just, we, you know, we just keep coming back and coming back and coming back. And I was, as I was sitting there, this thought came into my head. Did you know the cops have never been to my house? Never. They've never come because... Kathy's beating on me. <laughs> they've never come because my boys have done anything and they had to show up. They, they've never have. And, and as I, you know, I'm trying to explain this in the right way I can. I mean, we all come through life in different things, right? And, and, but what I'm saying is that I was raised to look up. And so from a young age, I started looking up. God, what do you think? What do you want? And I tried to live my life in that way. I wasn't always successful. But I can tell you, if you'll do it God's way, the cops don't have to come to your house. Does that make sense? They don't have to show up. And I can tell you, if you'll do it God's way, you can, you can lay in bed at night behind, beside a husband or a wife, and there's no shame. There's no regret. There's, there's no... It's just, there's nothing like it if you'll do it His way. It's, it's wonderful. You're, you can have a marriage that it's just, it's like, I just never knew it could be like that. I just never had a clue it could be like that. Do it His way. See, God wants you to enjoy it. 
He, he wants you to, to enjoy life and everything that He's created for us, but He wants you to do it. He knows do it the right way. Because if you do it the wrong way, there's destruction and there's death and there's shame and there's regret and the cops show up at your house and all kind of things like that. Do it the right way. That's all God is saying. He's not a killjoy. He's not a killjoy at all. But he knows there's a right way and the wrong way. You see, in the end, things like hunger and the digestive process of the stomach, that, that's all going to stop. That's all going to cease. But the body, you, the total person, your mind, your spirit, your soul, your flesh, they were created for a much higher purpose. You can't compare the two. That's what Paul is saying. You see, some in the Corinthian church thought that Christianity was just a set of ideas. Listen, too many Americans live this way today. They think Christianity is just a set of ideas, just a set of beliefs. And as long as I say I believe them, as long as I agree with them, I'm okay. I can do anything I want to do and get away. That's, what, that's exactly what the Corinthians... What I do in this life with this body doesn't really matter. It's just, it's just temporary. See, they didn't think it had anything to do with the body. But in fact, Paul said it's got everything to do with it. What you do with your body matters. How you use your body matters. You can either honor God or you can blaspheme Him. Let me say that again. What you do with your body matters. You can either honor God, honor His Word, honor His ways, or you can blaspheme Him. That's all in our choice. Next week, we're going to finish out the chapter verses... Um, 14 through 20, and as I mentioned, Paul, is, is, he just opened up the subject about sex, and he's saying, you can't say that the body is meant for sexual immorality. It's meant for, it, there's a purpose, sex has a purpose, but it's to glorify God. It, it's, a, it's a different sin than any other, and next week he's going to explain that in, in detail. So next week we'll continue with the Christian and sexual freedom. Let's pray. Father... We thank you for uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and what we've learned so far. And Father, I know as we go through this week and next week and in the weeks to come, we're going to be talking more, more about our behavior, the things that we do, how we use our body, the decisions that we make. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, just to come into these classes and help us uh, to, to open these things up to us so our mind will understand. Give us a heart to want to glorify you even in the little things. That's all we can ask. If it's up to ourself, we can do it for a little while, but eventually we'll fail. But if you come in, Holy Spirit, and change our heart, change our heart that we want to glorify you in all that we do, man, that makes all the difference in the world. Then this, this word becomes life-giving instead of condemning. And that's, what, that's all we want, Lord Jesus. We ask you to pray for the service today, for those being baptized. Lord, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you as I do, then I pray this day that the veil will be lifted from their eyes and they'll see you and just how glorious and wonderful and valuable and majestic you really are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.